Hello, it's Monday, November the 20th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio here on the Stanford University campus, Paul Roderick Gregory, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow, economic professor at the University of Houston, and at this time, nearly 54 years ago, a participant in history. That history and the topic of today's podcast, not so much the 45th President of the United States, but the 35th President of the United States, the assassination of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Paul Gregory, where were you on November 22nd, 1963? Uh, Bill, I was a student, a senior, um, economics major, Russian minor at the University of Oklahoma in Norman. Uh, We had gathered for a Russian class in the library and a colleague or fellow student came by, Ken Studebaker, and said the president's been shot, no classes. Um, We dispersed and I decided to go to the student union. In those days, there were no big screen TVs, uh, but I knew there was a big screen in the student union, so I went over there and there were about 50 students gathered and Later, the Sooner Magazine actually had a picture of me sitting watching uh, the television. So we watched, we heard Walter Cronkite say that Kennedy had died. Uh, We stayed there, although there wasn't much news glued to the TV. They said, uh, they're bringing somebody in, they have a suspect. So we were watching and then they bring in the suspect and there I see my friend uh, very clearly, Lee Harvey Oswald. Right now, so you can imagine that was something of a shock. So on November 22nd, you're in Norman, Oklahoma. Your father, however, is in Fort Worth, Texas, which is where John Kennedy actually began his last, last day on the planet. What was the Gregory family doing in Fort Worth, Texas? Uh, my father, uh, who was born in Siberia, uh, came to studied Berkeley in his early 20s. He became a mining engineer, worked in the West Texas oil fields, and then had a consulting business in uh, Fort Worth. Uh, As a um, side activity, uh, he offered Russian classes at the Fort Worth Public Library. And uh, so if anyone wanted to know in Fort Worth, Texas, is there anyone here who speaks Russian? they would thought would have thought immediately of my father. And when Lee Harvey Oswald returned with Marina uh, to Fort Worth uh, to live temporarily with uh, the brother, um, he came by the library, uh, uh, not the library, he came by my father's office and uh, asked for a certificate stating that he was fluent in Russian. He had hoped to get some kind of draw a job as a translator. So that's how the contact between the Gregory fa- family, uh, Lee and uh, Marina began. So that's how your father met the Oswalds. How did you come across the Oswalds? <clears throat> I recall I was home shortly after Lee and Marina returned and my father uh, told me that there was this fellow from Russia uh, with a Russian wife and uh, we had the address. Lee had told my father, you know, come by and visit uh, if you wish to do so. And so uh, 
when I came home for a weekend or some holiday, we got the car, drove over to um, um, Lee's brother's house, and that's where I met first time Lee and Marina. All right. And your first impression of Lee Oswald was what? <clears throat> the the impressive part of the couple was Marina. Uh, so you noticed her before Lee. Um, Marina was um, very delicate, uh, very thin, uh, sort of a classical Russian beauty. Uh, Lee was short, wiry, um, balding, uh, gave the impression of high levels of energy. Mm -hmm. uh, he, I later learned that he had invited us over as a present for Marina, who had started to complain about isolation. Uh, being in Robert Oswald's home, where no one spoke Russian except Lee, and so Lee said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get you some Russian friends. And I think that was the reason for the uh, invitation. Was there anything about Lee Hos Harvey Oswald <coughs> that suggested that he could be capable of a violent act? Did he have a temper, Paul? Did he easily fly off the handle? Did he express frustration? Well, um, this was our first meeting, uh, one of many, many meetings, because uh, Basically, at that first get-together, we agreed that I would go over to their house r regularly. Mm -hmm. At that point, they were living with the brother, but shortly they moved to Mercedes Street, which wasn't far from where we lived. And so when you ask about these observations um, of Lee, they would have taken place over a fairly long period of time, a couple of months. Right. Uh, and during that time... What I saw was um, sort of a disillusioned man with um, visions of grandeur. Uh, he was constantly reading um, Marx, Engels, um, H.G. Wells, uh, sort of heavy stuff. I think he considered himself a, a great intellectual who was misunderstood, who'd not gotten any breaks in life. The only time I saw violence in him was, it was actually, well, yeah, it was uh, when I would uh, take them grocery shopping. They, they had no car, and uh, they lived in a duplex, and there was a step down from a small porch. So we were leaving the house, and uh, Marina lost her footing and fell over backwards. And uh, uh, she's carrying daughter June, who was an infant. And uh, <clears throat> I worried that she perhaps had injured herself seriously. And I was ahead of them. And Lee uh, flew into a rage um, that she had done such a stupid thing. Uh, didn't seem at all concerned that she might be injured. He was worried about the daughter. Uh, the incident passed rather quickly, uh, but it made an impression on me, and it was about that time that we had contemplated um, introducing them to the small colony of Russians in Dallas and Fort Worth. And I decided that um, 
if I told my father, who was quite a gentleman and straight-laced, about this incident, that would have been the end of uh, our socializing uh, with the Oswalds. But um, I, I did see that one incident. I was naive at the time, uh, didn't realize that some husbands beat their wives. So there were a couple of occasions where, where I went over and um, Marina had a, had a blue eye or a bruise. Mm -hmm. uh, but, of course, I didn't see that in person. So there was a temper there. Yes. Yes. Uh, are these similar questions to what the FBI asked you? And explain a little bit about how the FBI came to you after the assassination. <clears throat> well, as I said, I was in Norman, uh, saw that they had brought in Lee, and I figured uh, they would have some interest in me <clears throat> and interest in my father. And it was early the next morning that um, it was not the FBI, but the Secret Service showed up, and they had driven down from Oklahoma City. So they, we drove to Oklahoma City where I made a statement. And that statement, um, it's remarkable what one can find on the Internet these days. Um, but that statement is still on the Internet, and... Um, I read it with interest, you know, some 40, 50 years later. Right. Uh, I also gave statements to the Warren Commission. My father was a prime witness uh, for the Warren Commission. But when I re read that statement, I think it, it summarized then what I felt, and I feel the same thing now. And... The, the question in Oklahoma City was, uh, do you think he did it, and right. if so, why? And uh, was there a conspiracy? Because at that point, they were very worried about a, a conspiracy. And my answer at the time was, this is someone who wanted to go down in the history books and would do anything to get into the history books. Uh, I doubted that he would be part of any organized conspiracy because he was just too too disorganized um, that's not the right word but too unreliable let's say to uh, be a kingpin in in some conspiracy so the remarkable thing was that um, from the minute I saw Lee on that television screen I, I didn't doubt that he did it so it, it, it seemed to all make sense you did. Uh, this is one of the many things about the Kennedy assassination that intrigues. Of the four presidents who've been murdered in office, uh, we know the motivation for John Wilkes Booth shooting Abraham Lincoln. He was a Southern sympathizer. Charles Gateau shoots James Garfield. He's angry because he doesn't get a Republican patronage job. Leon Zolgaz shoots William McKinley. He's an anarchist. But with Oswald, Oswald we don't know the motive. He didn't leave behind a note. He, we didn't have a trial. He has never he's never sat down for great periods of time and confesses. So it's left to everybody to guess what motivated this young man to do it. I believe my sense of this is, has not changed over 50 years. Um, I don't think he was part of a, an organized conspiracy. Mm -hmm. um, he... Uh, Probably a, a factor in this would have been 
impressing his wife because he had <clears throat> promised her that he would be a great man. He was writing this historic diary, um, which was going to make him a world-famous figure, and she would laugh at him. So I think it was this uh, derision from her, and I'm not blaming her for anything, that uh, would have motivated him. So, you know, he did something. His name's in the history books. Uh, you didn't believe me. You laughed at me. So I think that's a factor. Right. Um, Marina Oswald, she recedes into history. She's now Marina Oswald Porter, correct? Correct. So what what does the FBI do with her after the murder poll? Where do they house her, and does your family have contact with her? My father um, translated for Marina, uh, who spoke very little English, mm-hmm. uh, almost, uh, well, from like 9 a.m. the day after the assassination. Uh, I think, oh, it was kind of interesting because he was awakened. The, the, F, the Secret Service had visited him like 2 a.m. the night of the assassination. So he was aware that they had some idea about the fact that we had an association with Oswald that we had introduced him to the Russian, Dallas Russians. But um, something like 8 or 9 a.m. the morning after the assassination, my father got a call from uh, Lee's mother. Uh, Margar- Marguerite. Oswald, Marguerite. Right. Uh, and they were holed up in uh, some downtown Dallas hotel. And... She, without my father knowing it, had taken Russian lessons at the library. So maybe that's the reason she knew of him. How she got the telephone number, I don't know. But she called my father and said, come rescue us. You know, they're holding us here. And my father had the card of the Secret Service guy, called him, and... He came by and picked up my father, and then they headed towards um, Dallas uh, and picked up uh, Marina and Marguerite and, and the two, two kids, and they intended to head to a farm that was owned by the Oswald family, and it was on the way that they got word that Lee had been shot, and uh, so they didn't proceed to the farm. Instead, <clears throat> they went to uh, Parkland Hospital. Interesting. Have you been following the uh, the archives that have been released? No. No. No interest? It would be interesting, but uh, it's, it's a major amount of work. Uh, so it's not something one can just leaf through. So I felt one either does it seriously or not at all. And I'm sure there are many good scholars who are going to go through it carefully. Mm-hmm. So, Paul, why do you think the country is still obsessed with John Kennedy's murder? Uh, Wednesday, the 22nd, will be the 54th anniversary. If you were 18 years old at the time of that murder, you're now into your 70s. There is an entire portion of this nation that never knew John Kennedy, does not relate to the early 1960s, doesn't maybe understand Camelot was not present for the trauma of it. Why is the country still, in many respects, stuck on this? The, that is explained by the mystery mm-hmm. 
and the potential for, for conspiracy. Mm -hmm. um, there are some troubling issues that have never really been resolved. Uh, you know, the Ruby thing is kind of hard to believe, but, you know, I tell people, if you just try to calculate the probability of your standing where you are right now, uh, say five years ago, the probability would be zero. Right. So it's uh, things that look like incredible co um, conspiracies uh, are just sort of normal coincidences. You know, the the Ruby thing is is troublesome. Um, I don't know if that has has been adequately explained. There's a lot of talk now about this visit to the Cuban embassy, the Russian embassy in Mexico City. Right. Um, I can easily see Lee returning from that uh, trip, um, having been received by, say, the Russians or the Cubans, and I'm qu quite confident they would have told Lee at least the Cubans would have. We're grateful to your work for your work. You know, it's it's good to have uh, uh, fellow believers in the U.S. You know, keep up the good work. And uh, with that, they could have set someone like Lee in in motion, not knowing what he would do or if anything that he would do. So if there is a conspiracy, I would say would would have been in that form. That is, he he was doing what he thought his um, his mentors uh, would want him to do, uh, but. It's clear that he was a loose cannon. You know, weeks before he tried to take out Gen General Walker, right. who was on the other side of the political spectrum. People tend to org uh, to forget that. And then, um, you know, I know exactly how he got his job at the uh, Texas uh, School Book Depository. How did that happen? It, it happened through uh, Russian friends we'd acquainted them with, and when. Lee returned, they happened to have information that a job was available. So there was no um, group that was setting him up in the building that Kennedy would pass, and the Kennedy uh, route was not known until shortly beforehand anyway. So I think it's the fact that uh, this is uh, one, one of the great conspiracy uh, potential conspiracies of all time, and no one is prepared to let it go. I will confess that I've watched more hours of television on this than I probably should have. And Paul, I don't know what history cable channels would do without the Kennedy murder and Adolf Hitler. <laughs> I think two-thirds of their program trouble. would be gone. Uh, but this much I know from all of the television I've watched, Paul. Uh, number one, uh, I have watched grisly forensic shows which have actually taken scale models of the car, the people in the car, and then they've done forensic studies, Paul, on what it is to shoot a rifle from different angles and things that happen. And it shows two things. Number one, that if you look at the Zapruder film and then you look at, you look at what happens when you shoot behind Kennedy, the two match. So according to their studies, if you shoot from the grassy knoll, John Kennedy is murdered and Jackie Kennedy is murdered too. The shot goes through him and hits her as well. So the shot from behind, upper level, adds up. Second thing that adds up, Paul, is that 
Oswald fits the profile of somebody who would do this and that he was disgruntled. He was trying to make his mark on the world. On top of that, he had training, thanks to the United States Marine Corps, in how to operate a rifle. So it's possible he could have shot three times and actually managed to get lucky and get a headshot on one of them. But then the third thing that sticks out, Paul, is, okay, let's play the conspiracy card and let's suggest the Russians, the Cubans, the, um, the mafia, Lyndon Johnson, the CIA, the list goes on of people who wanted John Kennedy dead. It, to try to do that and run the risk of getting caught, especially if you're, say, Cuba, you'll just be annihilated for doing this, it doesn't add up. And on top of that, Paul, in terms of being a conspiracy, how could it hold water for 54 years? At some point, somebody is going to sink. I think the fact that it has held up for 54 years is very telling. Um, one thing I would note about Lee, because I spent a lot of time with him, shopping, you know, sightseeing, just talking in their apartment, was his resourcefulness. This guy, I think, was dyslexic. You know, he couldn't he couldn't spell. He he sent sent me a postcard with, which is full of misspellings. He hmm. so you get the, get the impression this is not a very bright guy, but. You know, he went to Russia. He he managed to stay in Russia, although they wanted to kick him out. Mm -hmm. He came back. He somehow got the money to come back. Uh, he paid all his debts. Uh, he earned virtually nothing, but they managed to get by. He uh, got the money together to go to Cuba, to move to New Orleans, to work on behalf of uh, Cuba Libre or whatever the organization was. This guy was a very resourceful guy, uh, and I think this is overlooked. And um, this may make me somewhat unique in that I, I, I can, in retrospect, see how resourceful he was. What did he like to small talk about when you were passing the time with him? What would you guys, what would you guys converse over? Well, a lot of it was just so that I could um, speak Russian with Marina. Uh -huh. uh, so. Uh, Usually when I'd go over, uh, she and I would sit at the dining room table and, and go over some materials. Lee would lounge in a, on a sofa, and he was constantly reading. Uh, I do recall, I think I've already said, he was, he was someone of great energy. Mm -hmm. Now, I never saw him tired. He, he had a, um, a manual labor job. He had to basically walk to work. Uh, and so uh, he was never, never, uh, he never showed any fatigue. He was always on the, on the move. Uh, so that's one of the things I remember most about him. If I could add one thing, and that is I did spend some time going over the transcripts and the records and so forth, none of the new stuff. But it's easy to see how conspiracy theories arise because uh, I distinctly recall one day we were going out shopping mm -hmm. and uh, Lee said there's a guy over there in the car I need to go talk to him clearly he had to go it was an FBI guy and uh, if you look at the FBI records from Fort Worth they had never con according to these records they had never contacted him right uh, but uh, they had ceased contact with him by that time. Yet, I can tell you, you know, there was the FBI guy, there was Lee uh, talking uh, to them. He sat in the car for a while. 
So there's so many holes, there's so many inconsistencies. You can dig them up and you'll find a thousand. And if you wish, you can um, add them all together and you and you have yourself a conspiracy. Did he ever mention John Kennedy? Uh, yes. Uh, one of the, the they lived in this little hot duplex. Um, virtually no furniture. The baby slept on a on a suitcase. Uh, but on their coffee table, they had Time magazine uh, with um, Kennedy on the cover, and that uh, Time magazine never moved. Uh, Marina, I think it was for Marina because she was quite an admirer of Jackie. Uh, but the picture was of, I mean, the cover was of of Kennedy, not of Jackie. So I think there were occasions when I said, you know, what do you think? He's our president. Um, Marina, of course, mentioned Jackie's beautiful, had had really attractive kids. And, uh, you know, Lee said nothing negative about um, Kennedy. But that Time magazine just sat there. So he never said, that guy should die. No. All right. Well, real life is not as clean as it is on TV or in the movies, is it? By no means. By no means. What happens to Mrs. Oswald after the assassination? <clears throat> That's quite a story. Uh, my father was with them, you know, I think for five to seven days after the assassination. There were wild goings on at the um, Six Flags Inn where they stayed. One thing my father saw, which has not been written up very much, is, was the intense rivalry between the FBI and the Secret Service. Uh, the Secret Service blamed the Dallas FBI and was even keeping the location of Marina and Marguerite uh, secret from the FBI. And the FBI came and tried to get the information from my father, and he said, you, you need to talk to the Secret Service. But at Six Flags Inn, they, I think they hired a private detective, and there, were, there, were, there was one occasion where there were pulled guns as the FBI and Secret Service confronted each other. <laughs> wow. Uh, and in the years after the assassination, she, what happens to her? She, um, um, she she's taken in first by the manager of the um, Six Flags Inn. Um, that didn't work out. Eventually, she married. Um, and I, what's his name? Uh, Porter, I believe. Yeah, Ken Porter. Ken Porter spent the rest of his life uh, shielding her from the press um, and inquisitive people. Uh, I uh, talked to him a couple of times, mentioned uh, the, the background I had with with Marina. Mm -hmm. he, he wouldn't allow me to talk, so I gave up on that. Um, I suspect that uh, she would have been willing to talk, but I respected the fact that he made a good decision to keep her out of the limelight. So I think um, he did her a real service. Let's, uh, Paul, let's spend a couple of minutes talking about another event that does involve Russians and does involve conspiracies, and that's the election last November. 
Um, I had this working theory, Paul, that like the Kennedy assassination, there's a problem here and that people just can't get over the concept of Donald Trump winning an election. There has to be some larger explanation for what happened. There has to be some sort of malfeasance, some sort of conspiracy, which takes us to Russian hacking and Russian meddling. Clearly, the conspiracy or the collusion theory is a consequence of the outcome. Um, just disbelief that this, something like this could happen. Right. And um, so I think you and I see eye to eye on that. In fact, when the Russian thing, collusion thing broke and Trump, even in the debates, you know, refu refused to blame the Russians, um, I said to myself, what he's doing is right. Because the minute he says, yeah, they, they did it, that's the reason I'm winning, uh, then he would have uh, uh, d diminished the legitimacy of his, of his administration. So uh, there was great outrage when he refused to say, yes, the Russians did it. They're terrible people. But as I say, uh, the legitimacy of the presidency was at stake at that point. And I think he was smart enough to, to know that. Yeah, I think so too. But again, there seems to be this parallel okay. that there are sometimes simple explanations, and it's a very simple explanation that a disgruntled man aims a rifle and kills the president. Like it or not, it can happen. And it's also very easy to explain that Donald Trump just did a better job of campaigning than she did. He got the right combination, and he won the election. But yet we seem to want to put some sort of grand conspiratorial notion. Well, we always do. Right. And uh, it's, it's always going to happen. So just sit back and enjoy it if you can. Okay. Final question, Paul. Let's suppose Lee Harvey Oswald puts down the rifle and doesn't fire at John Kennedy on November 22nd, 1963. What happens to that young man? He would have shot someone else. Um, he would never have had the opportunity that he had on that day to take out the president. He would have shot the mayor of Dallas. He would have taken a second shot at General Walker. Um, I, I think, I think he was a dangerous man. So he was just on a course to do this. Yeah. Because he just what he just didn't have any professional path. He just didn't have any real real hope in his life. Correct. Which is interesting since he had a beautiful young wife and a child. He had, in theory, things to live for. Yeah, that marriage was on the verge of breaking up. So, um, you know, whether he would have looked at it in that way or said, this is my last chance to do something, or I, I don't know. All right. And on Wednesday, are you going to stop and watch anything about the assassination, or is November 22nd just another day for you? Another day. Okay. Paul Gregory, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Bill. I enjoyed it, too. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you would mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Paul Gregory and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox every workday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T. Paul Gregory is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Paul R underscore Gregory. 
And you should also check out his blog, which is called What Paul Gregory is Writing About. And you can find that on the web at paulgregorysblog.blogspot.com. I'll repeat that, paulgregorysblog.blogspot.com. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care, have a good holiday, and as always, thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.